is doing all right this morning. Uh, we're going to be continuing here on our discussion of eschatology. Uh, we're going to be talking today a little bit more. We kind of briefly mentioned it last time, uh, but this is kind of the, the focal points or one of the focal points of chapter one, uh, which is history. How do pagans view history and how do Christians uh, view history? And there's going to be obviously a bit of a difference there. Uh, so we'll go into that and talk about that and why then, how does eschatology then influence uh, the ways in which even different Christians uh, view history differently. Morning, y'all. Uh, but before we get started, I'm going to turn to uh, Psalm 8. If you'd like to turn there with me, uh, that'll be our opening scripture passage. Psalm chapter 8. Sorry, I shouldn't, shouldn't say Psalm chapter 8, it's Psalm 8. I've been corrected on that before. <laughs> Psalm 8. I'll read this for us and then pray and we'll get started. Psalm 8. O Yahweh our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babes and infants you have established strength because of your foes. To still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea. Whatever passes along the paths of the sea, O Yahweh, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Amen. Let us go before our great God and King in a word of prayer. O Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. We come and we bow down before you, knowing that all history, all that which comes to pass comes from you, that you are the one that has foreordained it all that you are the one who is controlling it all, and you do so because of your great story of redemption. You point it all toward your Son, our dear Lord Jesus Christ. And for that we are oh so grateful. And we look back upon his first coming, and now we anticipate his second coming, and we say with all the saints, come quickly, Lord Jesus. It's in his name we pray these things. Amen. All right. Well, today we're going to be talking about that, about history. Because history is, um, there's a lot that we can say about history. We can talk about why we even do history in the first place. Before we get into that, we did talk a little bit, uh, at least briefly, about uh, four or three ways, three basic ways that you can view history or the events of the Bible or eschatology. And uh, those are at least, if you're not that any of these views think that there are not ups and downs, that there are not roller coaster rides as far as bad things happening and good things happening. But at the very least, there are three views. One that would say things are getting better over time, over a long period of time. Things are kind of a flat view, that there are nothing, there's nothing really new under the sun, that things are always the same as they always have been. Or that things are generally getting worse over time. And we're going to, that will play into um, how we look at history and how uh, Gentry, in our book, in our book, He Shall Have Dominion, that we're going through, uh, in chapter one, he opens up his discussion of history by talking about the fact that before Christians came along, 
Um, actually, none of these views were the views that were being taken by the pagan society. Um, and there were, uh, there were a bunch of pagan cultures, of course, before Christianity came along. Um, and what was the, the most notable? Uh, when Christ comes upon the scene, uh, what was the dominant civilization, the dominant society? The Roman society, exactly. Yes, Rome. Uh, she had reached her height of power, or she was about to reach her height of power. Uh, some uh, scholars differ on when that height was, but around 117 is probably when her greatest extent uh, was, which is right then when Christianity was kind of bubbling to the surface and becoming quite prominent. And so Rome, uh, was Rome a monotheistic culture? No, it was not. It was a polytheistic culture. It had many gods. It was not only just a polytheistic culture in the fact that it had a pantheon of gods herself. It was polytheistic in the nature that there were many different cultures within her, and they even worshipped different pantheons themselves. And this was permitted, this was legal, so long as you stayed within the bounds of Rome and eventually proved your loyalty by pinching incense on an altar to prove that you were, though you may be loyal to your pantheon or to your household gods, you were most loyal to Caesar, who embodied the state of Rome. So that was the state that Christianity finds herself in as she is coming to the surface, as the Lord has commanded uh, the, the church to go forward and to take, uh, to begin to uh, take dominion of the nations. And of course, the nation at that time really would have been Rome. Now, the pagans do history differently. Because of their ideas and beliefs about gods, about many different gods, their view um, about history was one that was cyclical. And this was basically uh, the dominant view of history until Christianity comes on the scene. Uh, a, a cyclical view of history basically asserts that things just go around in circles. It's not a line. In, in the Christian view of history, the way we view it, we view a timeline, right? When you go into a big history book, if you go to the front or the back, you can typically find a timeline. It's stretched out. It's got a beginning point. It's got an ending point. Um, that is not the way that the Romans would have viewed history. Uh, they viewed it as a big wheel. It's going up. It's going down. Things happen. Things are, that are bad. Things that are good. But generally, we just find ourselves amidst the chaos and we're somewhere along the wheel, and the wheel is just going to keep on turning. And we even see this if you read even any uh, medieval literature. If they're ever hearkening back to old Roman classical ideas, they'll talk about this. Talk about the wheel, the wheel of fortune, the wheel of history. Um, all of those things are calling back to the ancient pagan days and the ways they viewed history. There's nothing new. There's nothing old. It's all happened before. It will all happen again. There is no beginning. There is no end. And you just find yourself when you happen to find yourself. Well, Christianity, is Christianity going to be happy with that view of history? No, she is not going to be happy with that. And the, the chief proponent against that view of history is Augustine. St. Augustine, uh, who was one of the most famous early church fathers. Um, he, has, he wrote probably more than any of the fathers. If you go back to what he wrote, he wrote thousands upon thousands of pages, hundreds of works, um, and uh, his chief uh, among them is the book called The City of God. Now, to give context for why he was writing The City of God, uh, he was writing in a time when Christianity had become very prominent. It was out in the open. It was illegal. Um, Constantine had made it thus, um, and so he was able to write like this, but as soon as Constantine 
uh, makes it legal. It's only a little bit later. Uh, the barbarian king Alaric uh, decides that he's going to invade and sack the city of Rome, the great, the eternal city of Rome that was supposed to never, uh, ever fall. It had been a thousand years since Rome had been built, and now there are uh, Germans coming in and taking all the gold out of all the temples. And all of the Romans, what do they say? They say, well, it's because Constantine made Christianity legal and we stopped worshiping the gods that the gods abandoned us and the Germans were able to come in and take all of our gold and uh, take over the city of Rome. And so Augustine finds himself in a precarious situation. He's, uh, he's dealing with many people. He's not in Rome itself. He is across the sea um, in North Africa. Uh, close to uh, where Carthage was, which was Rome's chief rival for, for hundreds of years. Um, but he's there, and many people in his city are, are threatening riots, threatening to invade the churches and to kill Christians because they say it's your fault that Rome was invaded. Uh, you turned us away from the gods, and the gods are not protecting us anymore. And so Augustine gives this in a very, very long work. It's over a thousand pages. He gives this long span of theology for why he thinks that this is a wrong way to view history. And he says, look, the way that you've been doing history is that things are just going back and forward, back and forward, like a, a big wheel, and it's turning and turning, and it's all chaotic because you believe in all these gods, and they're always fighting each other, and they can't agree on anything, and you just give the right sacrifice, you pray the right thing, and you just hope and you pray that that god's going to uh, do something for you today. And that's the way that you view history. That's not the way that history is, though. The history that the Christians believe in, and he begins to lay out how Christians view history, is that we believe in one God. If we believe in one God, then we believe in a God who has a single will and a single purpose. That history is created by him. He created time itself. He also created the world. He created everything in it. He created all the people within it. And he has a purpose for it, and it is not contradictory. There are not warring forces here. Yes, there is a war between good and evil, but even that, God had, uh, he had foreordained that. He knew it was coming. He had made it happen in the first place, and he's going to win it. There is a victory at the end, and it's all moving toward that victory. And so he said, no, you can't, if you're a Christian, you cannot view history as a wheel, as a cycle. You have to view it as a line. And that's why, uh, in the modern world, much to the chagrin of everyone in the academy, um, because of Christianity, we have timelines. We do not speak of time wheels. We do not speak of time circles. This all implies, he said, he said there were really, there are four things that are kind of elements of the Christian history, of what a Christian view of history has to entail. That first one is the big important one, that it's linear. It is a line. It has to move forward. The second is that it has to start with creation. It cannot have a non-beginning. It cannot be this endless uh, endless beginning and endless end that there was no start, there was no finish. It has to have a creational beginning. And what does he mean by creational? He means that it has to all come from God, that God is the start of it all. And so everything that happens comes from him. Um, there is nothing that caught him by surprise. There is nothing uh, that uh, came from somewhere else out in the ether as if there was God and there was something else and something else came from that instead. No, before there was time, before there was matter, there was God, and that is it. So that everything comes from there. It is creational. 
it comes as uh, the as the, the Latins would say, it comes ex nihilo. It comes out of nothing. The only thing it comes by is by the word of God's power and His decree. And it all, this is the third, it all has purpose. It all has purpose. It has to be uh, for a reason. There is not, there is not meaningless. And this actually brings us into uh, what there were many, um, there are many people in the academy, of course, who do history. And most people in the academy that do history are not Christians. Most of them are, uh, are secularists, are atheists. And even those who claim Christianity will say, well, I do history. I, I, I believe in God, but I will not account for this thing or that thing to God. Um, and because of this, they, they begin to approach, uh, basically, they're going back to a, a meaningless sense to history. Whereas Augustine here is saying, no, 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 if God created everything, there is a purpose behind it. He didn't do it for nothing. Um, and though sometimes our finite brains cannot comprehend all of the purposes that God has, um, you cannot assert, therefore, there is no purpose. And then finally, uh, that God intrudes into history. We are not deists, right? We do not believe that God created the world and then walked away and does not do anything with it. Um, that he, in fact, does intrude into uh, history, into real history, and do things. We call those miracles, right? Or prophecy, or be uh, the chief of miracles and the chief of revelation, which is that he came in the, in the uh, person of his son, in Jesus Christ, and actually was here in time and in space, lived 33 years in real history. So these four things, that it's a line, that it's creational, that has purpose, and that God intrudes in his history, these are the key elements of how the Christian is to view history. Now this brings to um, the, the author, spoke of a time when he went to uh, an historical uh, conference. And he was talking with historians. And they uh, began to laugh him out of the room whenever he asserted that this happened in history or that happened in history because of God's divine plan. Um, and say and attribute uh, the Reformation or attribute um, Christianity in the Middle Ages and all of the barbarians coming to Christ in such a short time span. Um, attributing that to, uh, to God and his work and his power. Um, they said, we're historians. We can't do that. We have to find a, a, an earth-based or a, a, a materialistic uh, purpose, or, or at least a reason why these things happen. We, can't, we don't have the luxury. We're historians. We don't have the luxury to look outside of the material world. Um, but that already asserted uh, their, their stance. Whether they call themselves Christian or not, whether they call themselves religious or not, they are uh, they're adopting the, the, uh, the secular view of history over and against the Christian view of history. They may call themselves Christian. They may indeed be Christian on when they go to church on Sunday and believe these things, but if this is the way they view this field, they are not viewing it as a Christian. And he, he asserted that, and he said, well, then how, why, are we, why are we doing this? How, why do these things happen? And they said, oh, well, things just happen. Uh, things just continue to, uh, this influences that, and this, uh, this storm might influence this army, and then this army might get half killed, and you, know, you didn't know that. So now they're, they're the losers instead of the victors in this battle, and it's just, it's just time and chance and, and randomness, and, and that's how, how it happens. And A, when you start to hear that, you start to hear the old pagan, it's all just a cycle. It's going over and over and over again. And he said, well, then why do history? And this is where he stumped them, and they, 
they told they got upset and told to leave the room because he said, why would you do history? If it's all just, just time and chance, then we can't make assertions. We can't try to say, well, we ought to do this instead, or we ought to... It's all just about an interesting account, right? As I said before, a, uh, a story is not just a series of events. A story has a beginning, and a story has an end. It has themes that are woven throughout it, and the beginning and the end are connected. They mirror each other in such a way that once you flip to that last chapter, you say, oh, that's what this was all leading to. I should have seen that coming. That's a story. If God is the author, then history is a story. That's why we call it history. But if God is not the author, if there are many gods, or if there are no gods, which is another way of saying there are many gods, because that's actually what they're saying, then it's just a cycle. It's all meaningless. It's all chaos. And it's going nowhere. And it came from nowhere. So this is the secular versus the Christian view of history. Gentry goes on, and if you could get your Bibles out, he says that there are some Christian presuppositions that you have to take to history. There are things you have to presuppose that if you don't, these things, these ways of viewing history, these four ways of viewing history, doesn't work. The first is we have to presuppose God. I know that is a shock to everyone, but let's turn to John. Let's turn to John 5, 26. John 5, 26. And if someone could read that for me. So that gives us what one of the fundamental things that we believe about God. God is, we're going to use the fancy Latin phrase, we would say he is asse. That is, he is being in and of himself. There is no being that comes from outside. Now that's very complicated, very philosophical, but all it means is that he's dependent upon no one. Uh, a child is dependent upon his mother and his father to survive. God is not dependent upon anyone to survive. He is not dependent. We are ourselves, even as adults, as full-grown adults, even if we are completely financially independent and, and we live in a, a completely, totally free, libertarian, anarchical society, we have no controls or dependencies upon us in any way, shape, or form, we're still dependent upon something, right? We even, we even know this practically. We're dependent upon uh, whether the, the, the ground around us is willing to produce food for us. We're dependent upon nature and that it does not become too hot or too cold or too harsh that it would destroy our shelter and kill us. Uh, we are dependent upon uh, so many different factors. We're dependent upon our neighbor, but they don't come and, and murder us and take all our money. Um, so there are many, 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 many things that we are dependent upon. And then, of course, what the, the secularist is unwilling to grant uh, is that we are dependent upon God himself, right? We, if God were to stop sustaining our life, we would cease to exist. We would not just die. We would cease to exist. Uh, God is sustaining all things, and so we are completely and totally dependent upon him. 
he is completely and totally independent. He has no dependencies. There is nothing that he has to look back on and say, well, if that, if this were to happen, well, then that would ruin everything. And I'd have to, I, I, I wouldn't exist or I'd have to change my plan or I'd have, no, he doesn't, that doesn't enter into the equation with him at all. He is completely in and of himself. This is why when, when Moses comes to the burning bush, he says, who, sh- who shall I say sent me? And what does he say? What is God's response? I am. I am that I am. There is no better answer to describe who God is. Simply that he is, and if nothing can stop that, nothing undergirds that, he is. And so that's why he gives that response, and that's why throughout the Old Testament, if you ever see, um, and I, when I see it, I, I tend to, to say the name outright, but when you see in the Old Testament, you see LORD in all caps, that's referring to that name. Yahweh, which is a, a form of the word to be. Um, and so if you see that in the, the old Hebrew text, that's what it's referring to. He's also, which is kind of just a corollary to this, um, it, it comes out of this, he is eternal, he is transcendent. If he is completely independent, if he is dependent upon no one or nothing, then he is also eternal. He is not dependent upon time. He is not dependent upon space. He is um, completely omnipresent. When we say he's omnipresent, it, uh, we were talking about the fact that he is here right, right now, but really what we're talking about with omnipresence and eternality is one concept, and that is infinity. There is nothing that, that finds God, nothing that, uh, that can really hold him. Um, space cannot hold him, time cannot hold him. Um, and so when he used time, uh, I always describe it, this is an imperfect analogy, um, but at the very least it kind of helps us kind of see things. Um, we look at a painting because it is in two dimensions and we are in the third, right? We see it all laid out before us as one uh, coherent piece and we can appreciate it all. We are not stuck at one point or another. Uh, God looks at time that way, which is completely in, in hard for us to understand because we don't, we don't get that. But time is laid out before him as a tapestry, not, not that he just happened upon it. He created the tapestry in the first place, but he's outside of it. He's not there... Um, he's not bound like we are in this moment to the next moment to the next moment. He sees all moments, and he uh, can, can then influence any moment that he chooses as he chooses. And he, so he does, as we see throughout the Bible, throughout history. And of course, he is sovereign, which is also a corollary to all this, that there's nothing that, if he wishes to control it, uh, there is nothing that can withhold its control from him, right? There is nothing outside his control. There is not, um, as R.C. Sproul used to say, not one maverick molecule. Uh, there's not even an atom, not even a quark that could uh, say, I'm going to go right instead of left uh, today without God saying, uh, actually, I, 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 I told you to do that. Um, God has all in absolute uh, control. Um, and uh, just to... Uh, to push that into, well, we'll talk about that even more as we go on to his providence. But then finally, can someone turn to Malachi? Can someone turn to Malachi 3, 6 to talk about that one of the, we're kind of having to zoom through his attributes here, but this is probably one of the most important of his attributes and probably most one of the most comforting as well. <coughs> Mm-hmm. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. 
So God is immutable. That is, he does not change. And that is vitally important. As we talk about his aseity, that he is, if history exists, it has to come out of out from God. And God, nothing, God does not come out from anything. He is eternal. He is not waiting at this moment or that moment. Um, he is not bound by a particular moment like we are. He is sovereign. There is nothing that he says, okay, I'm going, I want history to go this way or that way, and then it can't. And then he is immutable. That he, when he tells us what he is like, that is what he is like in the beginning. It is what he is like now, and it is what he is like in the end. God is always wrathful towards sin. God is always loving toward his people. Those things never change. If those were to change, then we would have good reason to be very afraid. Because he is very loving toward us now. But if he were mutable, then he may not be loving toward us tomorrow. This is why Malachi says this in the way that he says it. He says, I, the Lord thy God, do not change. Therefore, uh, you, O children of Israel, are not consumed. What is he talking about? Consumed by fire. Destroyed. If God was was mutable, if he did change, well, then he may have hate toward the children of Israel tomorrow, though he had love toward them in that day. And so this is why... Uh, the immutability of God is so vitally important. We already talked about the presupposition of creation, that all things have to come from God, that he was the one that created all things, ex nihilo, out of nothing in the beginning. But then we turn to providence. Providence. And we, we kind of touched on this in the attribute of his sovereignty. Um, does anyone know uh, the Westminster Shorter Catechism question number seven? What are the decrees of God? What are the decrees of God? <laughs> Go for it. Mm-hmm. Very good. Thank you. <laughs> Um, that's right. God, in his decree, his decree is that which he uh, commands, that which he says. And of course, we know that creation sprang forth at his word, at his decree. He does all of these according to the counsel of his own will. That gets back to his being, his ase, his being uh, in and of himself. Uh, that everything he does, he doesn't consult us, right? He does not come... Uh, to Caleb Malpe and say, well, I, I, I have this uh, that I would like to do in history. What do you think about it? No, he, everything that happens, he makes happen only according to the counsel of his own will. He takes counsel with himself. Now, that doesn't negate things like prayer, and that's a, a, another thing that, for another topic for another time, but this is, God likes to hear and to answer the prayers of his people. Um, but what we are saying is, as God is sovereign and as God uh, commands everything that, that comes to pass, he does so according to the counsel of his own will, and his will is perfect. His will is completely and totally just and right. He does this for his own glory. He is doing all of this for his own glory. He wants history to point to himself. Um, man tries to make it for his own glory. Man tries to turn it back toward him um, and by creating a, a history in which everything is chaotic, then he can do that. Because then he can say, when I, as uh, the master, have come in and created order in the chaos, and I have created...
created these civilizations or this technological wonder or whatever it might be and point it back to him. But God says, no, I've created history for my glory. I've done this uh, to, for everything to point to me uh, because he's, uh, rightly so, is asserting that he is the ultimate good. If we were to look uh, to him, we would find that he is the ultimate good. This is not something that he's doing selfishly. If we were to uh, to worship him as we ought, if we were to love him as we ought, we would find that this is the ultimate good. Um, and so he does all this, and then he foreordains whatsoever comes uh, to pass. Everything has a purpose and meaning in the world, and he is providentially bringing it all coming to pass. He didn't just create it like a clockwork and set it spinning. He is actively sustaining and pushing all things toward his own glory and his own ends. And sometimes we get caught up, and I'll bring up an example that John Davis likes to bring up a lot, which is uh, when we think about all the little things that happen in history, we say, oh, well, maybe God doesn't care about some of the more little things. He just actively uh, affects the, the bigger things. And, uh, and John Davis always talks about the Super Bowl. Does God care about who wins the Super Bowl? Um, and you know, I, the answer, of course, is yes, he does care who wins the Super Bowl. That might seem minuscule to us. That might seem very frivolous uh, to us. But, but suppose there was someone who bid, bet all his life savings on one team winning the Super Bowl. And then that person loses all of his life savings and uh, goes into a spiral and, and, and realizes that all the things he worked so hard for, all the things that he thought that he brought about by his own power, he realizes it's all gone just like that. And he begins to realize he's not very powerful and he realizes he needs to rely on something else. And he remembers his grandmother talking about church when he was a young kid and he starts going back to church and he begins to realize yes i i tried to build up my empire and i failed at doing that and because this team lost at the super bowl i'm now here at the church sitting under the preached word of god and hearing about the lord jesus christ so yes god does influence everything because even what we might consider to be uh, very small and influ uh, not influential at all uh, God is controlling all things that come to pass because he desires uh, that history continue and that it continue to point toward him and he uses it for his own end. Another thing we have to uh, presuppose as we do history is the fall because we know that bad things happen and the secularist has to come up with a reason for why bad things happen in history. Um, he attributes it to chaos, Right? He's, he's created a whole law of thermodynamics to assert that it has to be this way, that everything is bent toward chaos. Everything is, if you just let it go, it will go toward some kind of meaninglessness, some kind of chaos. Now, I'm not here to debate the uh, intricacies of the second law of thermodynamics, but that is, that is part and parcel to the grander view of the secularist that bad things happen because chaos exists. The Christian does not assert that. The Christian says bad things happen because sin exists. Now to ask another catechism question, what is sin? Church. <laughs> Very good, yes. So sin is rebellion. Sin is actively going against the law of God. And, well, this happened all the way back in the beginning in the garden. God created man, created woman, and created them good. They were upright. They were without sin. 
And God said, here is the law. Don't break it. What was one of those laws? Don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And what did Adam and Eve do? Well, Adam let the dragon into the garden. He failed to kill him, and he failed to defend his wife. And then he, the, the dragon, or the serpent, came to Eve, tempted her, and they both ate. And then man was plunged into sin. So we know that if bad things are happening, that if we are in the midst of a battleground, that there is something going on between good and evil, we do not assert there is not a battle between good and evil. We just assert that this didn't ever caught God by surprise, and that everything, even even the devil and the de demons, come from God. He created them. He did not. He was not caught off guard when this happened, and he's ordering it in such a way that everything's going toward what? Toward victory. Christ is going to win. We know this. No, no Christian, no eschatological position denies that Christ is going to win. Um, and we know that this is where it is all going. Sin is man's problem. It is our uh, rebellion against God. And so as we look at history and as we see different bad things happening, the secularist has to say, well, that's just chaos. Um, that's just That was just a fluke in the system. Um, Hitler was just... Hitler, Stalin, whoever you might want to assert, uh, just fill in ex-tyrant or ex-miserable person in history. Um, that person was just a fluke, right? That just he just he just wanted power and he, he got it and, and we, we got rid of that and now we're back on the right course. Whereas man looks at someone like that and he says, Oh, Stalin, he was in sin. He's doing what sin does. We know how sin behaves. We know what sin wants. Sin wants um, its own control, its own power. It wants to rebel against God, and it wants to play God, right? It wants to... That's why man seeks power out of sin, is because he's doing what Adam and Eve did in the beginning. What did uh, Satan say? He said, reach out and take, because God knows that in the day that you take it, you will be as God. That is what sin is, is the desire to play God, to be God, not take dominion as vice-regent and representative, as we talked about last week, but to be God yourself. That's what Satan, of course, wanted to do from the beginning. So that is, we need a healthy view of the fall and of sin if we're going to have a Christian view of history. And we're going to need, though, of course, if that were it, well, then everything would be chaos because then there was sin, and, and, and sin, if sin is left unchecked, it will go to its fullest extent. And I think if you look around what's going on right now, sin has been left unchecked in the American modern culture, and it is going toward its fullest extent. But there is obviously hope. That's why we have the scriptures. If we could turn to Colossians chapter 1, we will see that hope. Colossians chapter 1, can someone read verses 19 through 20? It was mentioned twice. There's one word there that was mentioned twice. What does Christ do? First active word there in verse 20. 
reconcile. Christ reconciles. What does it mean to reconcile? Seek forgiveness. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. If you're forgiven, if if you commit wrong against somebody, what happens to you and that person? You're separated. And to reconcile, more even more basically, means to bring back together. And that's what Christ does. Right? Christ, uh, there was a separation between us and God because of our rebellion and our sin. And Christ reconciles things together. So this is something that we have to reckon with as Christians as we view history. We have to view that there is reconciliation going on. There is redemption going on, right? The story of the scriptures is the story of redemption. Um, many people will call it redemptive history, right? Uh, but redemptive history is not relegated to the scriptures. All of history is redemptive history. God is redeeming throughout all of history. And even here, what we see that some eschatological positions might uh, have uh, to, uh, to figure out a different way to interpret is that it doesn't just say that, God, that Christ has come to reconcile individuals. That does talk about that in the second part of those verses. The first time the word reconcile is used, it says that he is reconciling all things to himself, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. There is a reconciliation going on with the world. Now, while we're not saying that every single person in the world is being saved, that's not what's being asserted here, that there is something reconciliatory happening. It's not just happening to individuals, but it's happening to the world, and that God, and this of course goes toward what we'll talk about later, in that there is not just a new heavens, there is a new earth. We're going toward what earth was meant to be. So that's hidden there for us in that passage. Second Timothy chapter three sixteen. We have to believe, if we're going to believe in a Christian view of history, we have to believe in Revelation. Revelation, not just the book of Revelation, but Revelation, that is, that God reveals himself. What does 2 Timothy 3.16 say? I've got it, 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All scripture is breathed out by God, profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Amen. That means Paul and Christ are not at odds, right? That's exactly right, yes. All scripture is breathed out by God. And we know because of Second Peter, Second Peter asserts at the very, very end that Paul himself is scripture. I've heard so many times that this verse is only referring to the Old Testament, which is just a, a silly... I'm sorry, I'm sorry. What? No, you're good. <laughs> but that's, that's but what I'm asserting here is as we, as we make the claim that God reveals himself, we have to say that there is some objective way in which he does that. And he has so clearly laid out the way in which he does that. He does that by his word, by his infallible by his, uh, his infallible word. It is inerrant, has no errors. Because it is coming from God himself, he was the one that, that inspired all of the authors. He makes it come together in a beautiful tapestry of a single story and a single narrative, all centered around his son, Jesus Christ. And so this is how God reveals himself. If you don't believe that we can object objectively comprehend who God is, if we think that we cannot really clearly understand what God is saying to us, then you can't believe in a Christian view of history, because then what's the point? Who is God? What is truth? 
might as well be there with Pilate, um, sitting before Christ and say, what is truth? Because if God, if we can't really comprehend what God's telling us, then we can't know. And then finally, we have to believe in consummation. Consummation, that is, that all of this, all of these things that we've talked about, their creation, providence, the fall, redemption, revelation, and then finally it all comes together in the last, uh, the, the eschaton that we've been referring to this whole time. That everything is going toward that victory. That Christ will be victorious in all that he says. And that will happen. He is powerful enough to make it happen. We, are, we do believe in a war between good and evil, but we do not believe in a good God and a bad God who are of equal stature going back and forth and back and forth, and we're just hoping and praying that the good one wins. No, we're, we, we see a war, but we know the victor, and we are on the winning side, right? Sometimes it's hard for us to comprehend, but sometimes we're like Elisha's servant, right? Elisha went before the great armies of Assyria, and his servant was there, and his servant said, we're about to be overwhelmed. It's just us two. We're out in the middle of nowhere, and there's this great army, and they're charging toward us. We're going to die. And then Elisha prayed to God and said, open the eyes of my servant. And then his servant turned around, and what did he see? He saw legions of angels standing behind him. We are on the winning side, though sometimes we don't see it. And that is the point of us talking about eschatology. I've got just a few minutes to uh, talk a little bit here about what this means for us as we then go out into the world. And Gentry talks about three ways in which this means, as, as we believe in a Christian view of history, and there is a point to history, there is a victory that we are going toward. Well, this is all wrapped up in what is the main theme, or one of the main themes of the New Testament, which is that the gospel. The gospel, the good news gospel just comes from good and spell which spell became news in later versions of english you put that together you get gospel and the gospel was to go forth and what is that gospel that is christ came down to earth that he lived a perfect life and that we were sinners and that we must turn unto him believe not only in his righteous life but also in his righteous death as he approached the cross as that perfect sacrificial lamb but not only in his perfect death but then in his perfect resurrection as he then rose and has ascended and is reigning even now. That is the gospel. And the churches go and to proclaim that news, that, that Christ is alive, that he is the only way to salvation and the only way to reconcile sinners to man. We believe, then, that the gospel will be victorious. That if God gave marching orders to the church, that something has to happen because of that. There is, God didn't just say, do this, church, but don't worry, you'll fail. And it'll be fine in the end because you'll, you'll get to go to heaven. It's all cool. That's not what God said. God said, go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And lo, I am with you, even unto the end of the age. Now, what is that age that he's referring to? God is this age. This is us. We are going out. The church is continuing to go out and to spread that gospel. And that means it has to go into the world. And there are three ways that the church uh, two of them, I would believe, being unfortunate ways. But three ways that the church has kind of chosen to view its goal as it goes out into the world. One of those, and this is what you find in most liberal circles, is they identify with the world. The identifiers. They identify with the world. And what do they say? Well, the gospel is great and all, but uh, there's, there's Johnny on the street needs, needs some money. That's more important. They need, a, they need some bread. That's more important. 
they need a hospital, they need water, they need this, and they start pointing out all the social concerns. Now, Christians are not to not be concerned with social concerns. That's not what we're asserting. But the liberals, the identifiers say, we identify with the world so much, and the world needs help, and I'm the world, and, and, and what, is, what do I see around me that, I, that needs help? All these physical things. And that's what's most important. They elevate the physical needs above the spiritual needs. And so this is why you see so often the liberal church is happy to give in to whatever the world wants to, to think about marriage or gender or all these things. Because at the end of the day, they identify with the world, and they want there to be no hunger, no poverty, no all. Those things are more important than the spiritual, which, of course, they don't realize, or they do realize, although they deceive themselves, that what they're identifying with the world in is to their own and the world's own destruction. They're not actually helping the world at all. You can give a man a uh, million dollars, but if you don't, you don't tell him the way to be saved from his sin, uh, then you've done him no good, and he will continue to burn in his, in his own sin and misery. So that's the liberal option. And then there is the more, I guess, what we might call the more moderate view, which is the separatist option. We need to separate from the world. God the Christ makes a clear demarcation between the church and the world. Therefore, the church must separate from the world. You're starting to probably see where, which, uh, how, how this kind of plays into some eschatological positions, what, why this is so important. The separatists say, let's Let's, uh, let's remove ourselves from the world. We are the church. We are holy. We are distinct. Um, but we don't need to worry at all about those things. They, they basically are a reaction to the, the identifiers, right? They say they, they identified with the world, and now they want to be like the world. So let's just separate entirely. Well, that a lot of times ends up being, that ends up being a retraction from social life. They get, begin to not identify at all with the society they're in not to have the concerns that they ought to have for their neighbor in those physical things because we ought not neglect those physical things. We ought not neglect um, political life. Political life is just the life that we have in our communities and our neighbors. I'm not talking about politics as in on the grand scale and in this party or that party. We're not talking about that right now. We're just talking about political life in how do you associate with your parents, with your teacher, with the people in your neighborhood. Those things, that, that's all part of being a good Christian. So I would argue, no, we can't, we, sh we shouldn't completely identify with the world entirely, but we should also not completely separate from the world entirely. Christ even said this, right? Christ said, I'm not, I'm not praying that you would take them out of the world. I'm praying that you would protect them while they are here, right? And so there is not total separation here. So then what's the, what is the last option? And Gentry gives us the last option. This is where I'll end for today. His last option is, and this is a scary word to so many people, his last option is, then we must transform the world. If we cannot identify with the world, and we cannot separate from the world, then we have to transform the world. What does that mean? There's something wrong with the world, and there's something that can be made right, and there's only one option for such transformation, and that is the saving power of the gospel of which Paul claims he is not ashamed. That is the only option. So the church has marching orders, she is to go forward, and she is to expect results. Now, that doesn't mean results the way that we think all the time. Sometimes the church goes into an area, and sometimes the church folds. Does that mean that the pastor there was unfaithful? Does that mean that the people there uh, were being uh, doing all these things? Not necessarily. It could mean that. But 
Christ says, go and be faithful, but I'm sovereign. I'm in control. I've told you to march and do these things, so do them. I'll give you the power. If you're going to transform the world, it's not going to even be you that's really transforming the world in the, in the first place, right? This is what, what the other side gets so afraid of. They say, oh, well, you think that you can bring on the eschaton yourself. You think you can transform the world by yourself. That's why we are separatists. We don't believe in that. And I say, well, that's kind of how Paul talks, though. Paul says, even when he talks about our own works, right? He says, work out your faith with fear and trembling. And the separatists could say, well, 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 you can't bring on your own salvation. You can't make your, yourself holy. But then what does Paul go on to say as soon as he says that? He says, for it is God who works to will and to work within you. If you are to be doing good works as a Christian, you can't even take credit for that because God gives you the strength to do it in the first place. And he is working in his spirit within you. In the same way, we believe as we look at the way that we interact with the world, that the world can and will be transformed and that God is using practical means. He is using the church, that he is not, we're not waiting for him to come and to save us, that he is pushing us out into the world. He's using us as his army, even though we be sin and, uh, sinful and feeble, he is transforming our lives. And so we trust that he is therefore transforming the world. He's, he doesn't just work with individuals. He works uh, with peoples and with nations and with the world. So I'll leave that for us today, that we are not to be identifiers or separatists, but transformers, not robots in disguise. <laughs> and I'll open the floor for questions. <laughs> I have some questions. <laughs> Shoot. This transform business sounds like a lot of work. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, earlier you mentioned God is immutable, does not change. This should be a layup for you guys. Okay. You mentioned that He's immutable, He does not change. How do we re reconcile what may appear as God changes His mind, changing His mind, or working in dispensations as a reaction to man's action? Well, you gave me two questions. Um, <laughs> one, how do we how do we consider the way it seems that he relents in Scripture? It seems. Yeah, I, yeah. No, I know. Um, <laughs> uh, there, that is uh, the way that Calvin describes the Bible. Oftentimes, um, in a way that God reveals Himself to us, is that God lisps. He lisps like a like we would speak to a baby to a child. Um, and so there are things that God says um, that. We take to mean things because of our simple minds, um, but uh, that that's not actually what he's, he's getting at. When God, um, say for the children of Israel, right, there are so many times. If you read the book of Numbers, if you read the book of uh, Exodus, uh, any of the Pentateuch after Genesis, what is it the story of? Well, typically it's the story of Israel being terrible and God saying, I'm going to destroy all of them. Moses, I'm making a nation out of you right here, right now. Let's do it. And Moses throws himself on the ground in front of God and says, no, remember your covenant with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and have mercy upon this wicked people. Does that mean that God had forgotten his covenant with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob? Does that mean that God then changed his mind? He's like, oh, Moses, you're right. Yeah, I'm not going to kill Israel. No, but he uses that example even to give us a picture even that far back 
of what Christ does, that there is wrath towards sin, and there is a Savior. Now, Moses is a, is a type of Christ. He's not actually Christ, but he's pointing us toward that. And so, though it seems to us in the narrative that that's saying that God changes his mind, it's not, God doesn't change his mind. If God could change his mind, we would have no reason to think that he wouldn't swallow us up in fire right now. Mm-hmm. I knew you'd pick that page. You were so well with it. <laughs> now, earlier you mentioned uh, a dragon in the Garden of Eden, but I want to remind you in all my felt storyboard Sunday school classes as a kid, always says the snake is very specific in Apple. How do you explain that? <laughs> well, the Bible says serpents. Um, and serpent can mean dragon. <laughs> but Revelation calls him a dragon, so I, I, okay. I stand by that. That they're, they're, they, um, Now, uh, I'm not saying that if we don't know what the animal that, that Satan inhabited in the garden, what it actually looked like. It, we know that afterwards there was no arms or legs. But we know there are many dragons without arms or legs. So it's... Um, You're saying that doesn't lie. It's not... Yeah, I mean... <laughs> It's there's a maybe a more a, a more uh, imagery based way that we like to talk about that that, that we're not just talking about a little snake well, that, that you could beat with your yeah it's a there's a the revelation speaks of a dragon and calls Satan the dragon and says the dragon that serpent of old it's relating him to the same thing and what do we see all throughout any kind of story um, good story ancient story is that man uh, gets the girl and defeats the dragon as, as some people have said um, and that's the story of the scriptures right Christ takes up the sword that Adam could not and defeats the dragon and so I use that language intentionally to bring Satan to our mind as the dragon as, as a foe to be stabbed as far as the apple that's never mentioned in scripture so I don't know what to say about that I ask the questions if they're <laughs> we still have five minutes, y'all. I think. I think your explanation on the Lord changing His mind is good, and it's important for our friends that may have a problem with where our eschatology study is going. It's very important. God does not go, darn, the people of God are messed up again. I guess we'll have to come up with a new plan. We'll do a flood. I guess I'll, I don't know, write a law now. Or, you, know, you know what? This is terrible. I'm going to have to send my son to the foot out there. That is not how it works. And unfortunately, this is a common understanding. Mm-hmm. When, you, when you say it like that, theology. yeah. Right? It's a, there's all these different ways in which God tried to save him this way, it didn't work. Tried to save him this way, it didn't work. Tried and tries and tries and tries again. But Genesis 3.15, right? And I will send my, uh, the seed of the woman to crush the head of the seed of the serpent. God, this is God's plan from day one. Um, and so it's all one story. And when we, when we say it in a picture like that, especially saying something like, oh, well, Jesus, you go down there. Well, it, it makes God flippant, which is not how the scriptures describe him. Um, it begins to separate the persons of the Son and the Father from each other. When we think of the Son as loving and as the Father as wrathful, that begins to put a separation that the scriptures do not warrant. 
in the persons of the Trinity. The Trinity has one will, and that will is to save his people, and that will is to judge sinners. Those will come to pass, and Jesus was not thwarting that will that said that sinners must be judged. He was bringing that to pass. Is that a question back there? <laughs> I believe that God has there is <laughs> I would uh, and I'll have to, it's been a long time since I've uh, I might get this one wrong but infralapsary, I believe that God uh, foreordained all uh, logically before the um, sin happened the sin is his, his uh, God did not have a plan in reaction to sin he made a plan before sin ever occurred. I believe that will make me infolapsing. <laughs> but that just goes in line with uh, the way in which we know God. God is immutable, is unchangeable, is eternal before sin happens. He's omniscient before sin happens. He knew it was coming. It's just hard for us to wrap our head around because we're like, well, God may create a, a perfect garden. And but. That did, that did not catch up by surprise either. Mm. All right. Any other questions before we wrap things up? I'll give you one. Okay. When you read through Colossians 1, mm-hmm. and, uh, it's easy for Creedmoor brothers to say that God sent Christ to reconcile all things to himself and say, well, yes, after he comes, then all things will be reconciled to himself. I think most Christians say, yes, there will be a, a day, but we all agree all things will be reconciled between heaven and earth and there will be complete peace, right? Mm-hmm. How do you say that that's occurring, is that occurring now? Is God currently in the process of reconciling all things to himself? And to what degree do you think that will happen before he comes? I don't know if I could tell you the degree. I can tell you that yes, he is reconciling things even now. The biggest reason I would say is um, Matthew 28, all authority has been given in heaven and earth to me, and though I am with the of you in the age. Uh, Christ is reigning now. He is on the throne now. And he is reconciling things unto himself. Um, there is a sense in which there, of course, are still bad things happening, but I think that this is substantiated by the way in which Paul talks he talks several times about the last days, these latter days. Um, some people try to assert that that's talking about after he comes back, um, and or right before he comes back, or these bad things will happen, these bad things will happen, therefore it's these latter days. Well, these bad things have always been happening. They were happening in the Roman Empire, they were happening in the Middle Ages, uh, they were happening in the Renaissance, in modern age, whatever you want, whatever time period you find yourself in. Any, any Christian could find themselves in any time period and, and, and say, oh, well, this must be the latter days. And I would say, you're right. Yeah, they're all the latter days. They're all these last days. And that when t- Paul tells Timothy, watch out for these types of people because they're coming in these latter days, he's not telling Timothy something that he wasn't going to be around for. He's telling him stuff that he would be around for and was around for. And so I believe this is all these, the, the age of the church. And Christ is using the church to reconcile all things unto himself. And no, it will not be that sin is completely gone. And then Christ says, okay, now it's time for me to come. But there will still be sinners uh, whenever Christ comes back. That is unregenerate. 
those that are not believers when Christ comes back. Um, but that things are going out and out and out, and the world is changing. There are more gathered into the church over time. And in that way, things are being reconciled. Zach? Do you think there's any overemphasis on a lot of As far as attributing sin to the heart of man, uh, proving that to a secularist, I think, is pretty... Typically, I would just talk about that person. Typically, it's easy to just talk about, do you, do you not sin? Do you not do these things? And are these things you not do you not do them because you, you legitimately want to do them? Um, I think... I think we, sh- we should not be... We should not take authority from Satan as far as pretending he doesn't do anything. Uh, he is obviously... Um, the, the demons are, are not not at work um, and uh, so I am weary to to give people that as an excuse for their sin because we are corrupt and we are totally depraved and, and so often we do things that we want and it's sinful but um, I do believe um, that the demons uh, are active in this world and they like to entice people towards sin and they do it all the time um, I think, what, I think yeah. Jamie exactly correct. What he's saying is, in the modern evangelical world, mm-hmm. I know, because I like my family comes from this where it's like, oh, it's that old devil again. Oh, oh man, yeah. I spent my paycheck at the bar because of the devil. The devil did it. No, you didn't. <laughs> <laughs> and you wanted to do it. And so I think is the, 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 the correlation of giving the devil more credit than For the church, we we have to be we should we should be very wary of ever playing the victim card and, and and deal with what we can and should deal right. If I'm a pastor going to a congregant and says, "Well, I'm dealing with this sin," it very well may be that there is some kind of demonic force enticing him toward that sin. But what do I have to tell him? I have to tell him, "This is your guiding source of truth. This is the lamp under your feet." Read this. Do these things that it tells you to do. And the Spirit, if you are truly a regenerate Christian, the Spirit is working within you, and you must work out your faith with fear and trembling, and He will give you the will and the power to do so. Um, and so, I do not deny that it could be demonic forces, but when faced with the, the issue in the moment, I cannot 
tell the devil to stand down. I cannot tell the world to stand down, but I can tell the flesh to stand down I, by the power of the Spirit working within me. Um, and so I have to, uh, in knowing how, how evil and wicked my flesh is, I do not deny that it could just be the flesh. That would be, then I, that would not uh, uh, surprise me. Um, and so that's kind of, I guess that's how I would approach it um, because it is what we can do, I guess. We are to deny the world, the flesh, and the devil. But the flesh is us. It's ourselves. All right. Very good. Uh, well, on that note, Zach, would you like to pray for us as we leave today? Yeah. Holy Father, thank you for this opportunity we have free to gather together to learn about your will to gain that much more joy and hope for the end state of this universe that you have and all that you have for us. Um, we ask uh, that our song this morning would bring you joy and pleasure, that you would be exalted, um, that the body would be edified with the preaching, that we would take what we have learned and go out and evangelize to the world, spread your gospel, and do your kingdom work. We ask that you bring glory to the church and as individuals. Thank you for all of our blessings, Lord. In Jesus' name.